care. No thoughts. All right. Hello. Um, thanks for coming, everybody. Um, it's very nice to be here. Uh, thanks to Matthew for doing the interview. Uh, thanks to Skylight Books for their bringing me to their amazing um, bookstore. Uh, we thought that I would I would read for a bit first, uh, and then we can we can we can talk. Yeah, we'll turn right? Okay. Yeah. And then we'll, well then we're gonna implicate you people and hopefully get you good. Lob questions up here as well. Okay, I'm going to stand to be more declamatory. Am I near enough to the mic? Is that, yeah. is that right? Okay. Uh, so just to tell you a tiny bit about the book, um, it's set in uh, in Dublin, in kind of a strange part of Dublin. Dublin, if you've ever been there, is the capital of Ireland, obviously, but it's a very old um, historical city. And smack bang in the middle of it is this financial district, which was built in the 80s as, as kind of like a giant tax dodge. Um, and it's where all of these kind of giant multinationals come uh, to do their dirty work. Um, Dublin was referred to as the Wild West of capitalism by the New York Times in, in the early 2000s. Um, and it's, 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 it's weird or it's interesting because it's so boring. Like, it's, it's in the middle of this kind of very sort of historic, sort of colorful city. It's, it's really anonymous and blank, and it's gone out of its way to make its, itself look as kind of ahistorical and deracinated as possibly can. Um, so, uh, Claude is the narrator of the book, and he's, uh, he's a banker. He's French. Um, he's depressed and lonely. Um, and uh, he's, approached by, uh, he's approached by a writer called Paul. At the start of the book, he sees this guy in black shadowing him, uh, and finally the guy comes forward and says he's a writer, and he wants to he wants to write a book about a modern day everyman. Um, Dublin is, of course, the, the the setting of James Joyce's Ulysses, which I'm sure each of you has read several times, um, and that's a story about about classically about about an everyman, Leopold Bloom, um, just an ordinary guy uh, at the turn of the 20th century, um, and this Paul, the writer, argues to Claude that that Claude, in this in his weird, abstracted, alienated life spent in front of a screen, in this kind of strange satellite, um, in the financial zone of the city. Uh, is a modern everyman in exactly the same way. So, uh, so he wants what he wants to do is he wants to shadow. He wants to sort of follow Claude around as he goes about um, his work, with a mind to putting Claude in a novel about the 21st century everyman. Uh, so Claude is initially very happy about this um, because, as I say, like he's he's quite a sort of a sort of a sad, alienated character, and he feels that you know being put in a book will will sort of give him the sense of moment and, and validity that, that he's lacked hitherto um, but he's also scared because he's, he's kind of anxious that, that Paul will, will come along and watch him and decide that what he does is actually too boring to be, like some things are just not representable by art and banking, banking is one of them um, and that Paul will sort of like hold up the mirror and there'll be nothing reflected within it um, so I'm going to start at um, so Paul's been there for a week it's Friday night and the bank the bankers have decided to show him their crazy side, so they're taking him to a bar called Life Bar, which is kind of a, a pun which is, gets explained down here. Um, I should issue a caveat, which is that, um, so Claude is French, uh, and he's telling the story. So I'm going to read his narration in my normal accent, which is this. But when he speaks, I'm going to do my, it's a French accent that I'm doing. Um, uh, his colleague, his boss, Jürgen is German, so that's a German accent that I'll be doing for Jürgen. Um, and his friend and colleague, uh, Ish, is Australian. She's a lady, so uh, my apologies to um, any French and German people here, any Australians, uh, any, any ladies. I'm, I'm doing my best. <laughs> Um, the thing about French accents, it's funny because I was doing some sort of some, some research on this, you know. And, and when I, I when I when I listen to French people on the radio or French people speaking, you know, in Dublin, you really can't turn it up high enough. Like the, you know, the French accent is is really uh, preposterous. Like they're very, you know. But but if I make a preposterous French accent, it sounds like I'm being a racist. So I, I'm, I'm, I don't do that. Um, anyway. 
Here is life dark and full of strangers, yelling at each other from their private intoxications like monkeys screeching through the bars of their cage. Music booms all around, prohibiting conversation at anything less than a shout. Battalions of drones, haircuts modeled after the heroes of the day, neck their fizzy lagers, their syrupy alcopops, and perform the minimal courting rituals required before they have sex with each other. The bar style is classic Celtic tiger, white armchairs with zebra throws, ubiquitous mirrors, large unseated area, palpable air of incipient violence, like a cross between a hairdresser's and the Stanford prison experiment. Nevertheless, life is the closest thing the financial services centre has to a local. This is where the real information is exchanged. Who's getting what? Who's hiring? Who's on the way? Up, down, out. Tips for good schools, good builders, good mechanics, good tailors, good divorce lawyers. The name is a pun. Life or Liffa is Gaelic for Liffy, the river that splits the city into north and south and broadly rich and poor, and gives rise to many more puns. I hate life. After a few drinks, life won't seem so bad, and so on, which we make instead of finding somewhere less repugnant. On Friday nights, patrons will typically skip dinner in order to start drinking sooner. Unthinkable in Paris. Get stuck beside Ish and you'll be treated first to what seems an unending series of cat videos, then, as the hysterical laughter dies away, find yourself attempting fruitlessly to comfort her as she rehearses yet again the breakup of her relationship before lurching off into the night with whichever, with whichever opportunist bought her last drink. I'm going to skip a little before it, so Paul's just about to leave here. And Claude, as I say, is getting anxious. As midnight approaches, I see Paul put on his coat. The end of... French accent. The end of your first week, I say. It is all going well. Sure, he says, but I detect a hesitation. Only... It's nothing, he reassures me. I'm just trying to figure out how it all hangs together. If you have questions, maybe I can help. At first he blusters nothings, then he pauses, looks at me, as if deciding whether to take me into his confidence. I feel like I'm missing something, he says. I've got the characters, what you do, the rhythm of the day, but I still, I feel like I'm not getting to the heart of things, you know? I must look very worried because he claps me on the shoulder. It'll come. Maybe I just need to change my focus a little bit. We will see you on Monday, I say. Of course, he grins. Have a good weekend. You're off camera. Let your hair down. Not long after the lights come up, life begins to empty, its pinchbeck promises having slipped away as always through the cracks of the night. We gather our things and make our way outside. I'm deep in thought. What Paul said about missing something bothers me. And as if picking up in that, Jürgen, brackets German, says, So he has told you it's going to happen. (laughs) Happen? In the book? We know what is going to happen in the book, I say. It is about me, a modern everyman, experiencing a typical day. Yes, but there will be some kind of story also, yes? (laughs) That is the story, I say. That is the story, I say. He says, yes. You sitting at your computer writing research notes about banks? That's right. Jürgen says nothing to this. It's not supposed to be one of those books where things happen, I explain. It's about discovering the humanity in ordinary lives. Oh, Jürgen says. There's another silence. It's not going to be boring, I say. Of course not, he says. <laughs> Around us the center looms, darkened and empty like a perspex necropolis. I think again of Paul's parting words, and anxiety quickens in my sinews once more. Oh, I reckon he's got something planned for you, H says, who's Australian, <laughs> as you can tell. Like what? Like, I don't know, maybe you fall in love. I'm not going to fall in love, I say categorically. In the book, this is exactly the kind of thing the main character will say right before he falls in love, Jürgen says. <laughs> yeah, says Ish. Plus, you're French. You lot practically invented a lot of French kissing, French letters. It's the whole French thing. How would you feel if I said the whole Australian thing was kangaroos and tinnies and daytime soap operas? That is the whole Australian thing, Claude. Why do you think I left? <laughs> yes, well, then you will understand that not everyone fits into the national stereotype. I certainly do not think that when people speak of the typical German, Jürgen chuckles, they're imagining a crazy man who loves reggae music and writes articles about medieval economics while listening to reggae music on his computer. (laughs) (laughs) My point is that adventurers, escapades, dramatic reversals, falling in love, these are the acneed tropes that Paul is trying to get away from, I tell Ish, though I'm perhaps trying to persuade myself as much as her. He wants to depict modernity as it genuinely is. Love's not hackneyed. Ish says obstinately. What does love have to do with this place? I throw my arms up at our surroundings, great glass panopticons surveying all the other panopticons. I'm serious, what does love have to do with anything we do all day long? That's what he'd better work out, Ish says. If he wants anyone to read his book. There are plenty of good stories without love. Like what? I think for a moment. 
20,000 leagues under the sea. <laughs> we have emerged onto the quay. Over the river, beneath the concrete skull of the unfinished headquarters, the zombies sleep in silence. Just because you don't have it doesn't mean you don't need it, Ish says, staring into the dark water. Every story needs love, even at the bottom of the sea. Is that enough or will I do another bit? Or? Uh, oh, I defer to you. Did you, you said you were going to read two bits, right? Can I read another quick bit? Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, right. Please. Um, yeah. Are there any Ukrainians here in the audience? <laughs> okay. We're good. Okay. Um, so Paul, so Paul has, has gone for the weekend, um, and Claude has spent the weekend fretting um, about about this the idea that that Paul is, is is has some some kind of intractable problem with the project, and he's late for work on Monday. When the writer arrives at the office, he's not alone. A man is with him, a great hulking creature almost seven foot tall, with a sloping forehead and brawny knotted forearms that extend from an ill-fitting nylon shirt. Paul introduces him as Igor Struma, poet, professor of contemporary art, and member of the celebrated Vladivostok Circle. It's going to be helping me with some of the more conceptual stuff, Paul explains. What exactly this means, I'm not sure. But for the rest of the day, instead of observing me and my colleagues, the two of them spend their time muttering in secluded corners or slinking around the office, making inscrutable gestures, knocking on walls, poking at ceiling tiles, tracing with their fingers mysterious vectors from the floor behind computers up to the power supply. I have a bad feeling about this, Igor. One cannot say what a poet ought to look like, of course, any more than one can say what a murderer ought to look like. But he definitely looks more like a murderer than a poet. He smells bad in several different ways at once, like curdled milk in a public lavatory. And when I type his name into the search engine, a red virus warning sign flashes up immediately onto the screen. <laughs> the others don't seem to share my reservations. Jürgen, on the contrary, is positively ecstatic. Two famous writers, we have almost enough to start the sell on. What is he doing here? Has anyone checked his credentials? Paul asked him to help out with the book, Ish says. You said yourself he was having a few problems. This is a good sign. You don't want him to pull the plug on the whole thing, do you? Of course not. I'm just confused. If Paul is writing a book about me and my work here, why is he spending all his time with some poet? This is the artistic process, Jürgen says with a shrug. Who are we to question it? I don't want to obstruct the artistic process, but when I see Igor under Paul's supervision making a gun shape with his thumb and finger and boring an imaginary hole into the wall, it's hard not to think the novel's being dismantled before my very eyes. Later that day, Paul invites me to the cafe for lunch with his helpmeet nowhere to be seen. Thought I should fill you in a little on Igor's role, he says, as the waitress guides us to a table. You're probably wondering what he's doing here. I'm writing the book. You're the subject. What am I doing bringing a third party into it? I make a stuck gesture of innocence as if the thought had never crossed my mind. The fact is that while the romantic image is of the writer working away in solitude, it's often much more of a collaborative activity. Every writer has his strengths and weaknesses. It's quite common to draft in a colleague to help out with elements you're less sure about. I've heard about such practices in other art forms, but I confess that I had not encountered it in literature before. Kind of a trade secret, Paul says. Can you give me an example? Example? Well, I suppose the most famous partnership would be uh, J. R. R. Tolkien and Ian Fleming. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah, when Tolkien was putting Lord of the Rings together, he was great at working out, you know, the ancestral backgrounds of the elves and so forth. But in terms of plot, he was hopeless. So he brought in someone who did know about plot, his old friend Ian Fleming, creator of James Bond. The whole magic ring thing was Fleming's idea. In the original version, Tolkien was just going to have the hobbits and the elves reciting poems to each other. <laughs> I didn't know that, I say. And similarly, Tolstoy, when he was writing War and Peace, found the peace parts no problem, but really got stuck when it came to war. So he got in touch with an up-and-coming young naval officer called Winston Churchill. <laughs> Winston Churchill, go out to War and Peace? Just little bits here in their details. Like I say, writers generally prefer not to talk about it. And what is Igor's specialism? Places. He's a master. Big places, small places, indoors, outdoors. He can do mountain ranges or lakes. He could write a paragraph about a broom cupboard that would have you bawling your eyes out. I suppose you could say he's got an intuitive grasp of structure, which you feel has evaded you in the bank, I say. Exactly. It's an unfamiliar environment. To be frank, not one that readily yields up its inner poetry. That's true, I concede. So I thought, okay, time to call in the expert. Given that I have this incredible access, which I'm so, so grateful for, I might as well take advantage of it. So Igor is going to be concentrating on the location details, the character stuff, plot, all that will still be me. This does make sense. And you have known Professor Elstruma for long? That man taught me everything I know, he says simply. Oh, I say, struggling to conceal my surprise. Perhaps I have misjudged him. 
At that moment, the door opens. Paul waves and Igor lumbers, creaking towards us. He takes off his ancient rain mac, releasing a cloud of pungent inner odours, and gives the waitress his order with a dry, smacking mouth. He stares after her as she leaves, like a cat watching a pigeon. So I was just telling Claude something about the collaborative process, Paul says. There's nothing wrong with collaborating, Igor says, rather confrontationally. I mean, in the book, you're going to help me out with the book. Igor says. The book, Paul repeats, set in the bank, the tale of the everyman. Oh, yes, yes, Igor says. Everyman, James Joyce, real life. His bloodshot eyes swivel over to me. You want the Frenchman, he says. Paris. That's right, I say uncomfortably. There's quite a rude joke here, which I'm going to skip. It went down very badly in Boston, so... (laughs) Back at the bank, the situation only gets worse. He keeps poking at the ceiling, Gary McCrum complains, prodding at it with some sort of a rod right over my head. Joe Peston storms over. That fucking Russian of yours unplugged my terminal. He's researching a novel, I tell them both. Computers are interfered with, files misplaced. Kimberly, the receptionist, approaches me in a state of disquiet to report that she sat down at her computer only to find Igor under the desk, apparently sniffing her seat. He's examining the structure, I say. But the truth is that I have no idea what he is doing. As for Paul, he barely speaks to me. He's too busy lifting furniture, pulling up floor tiles, taking paintings from the walls and staring at the blank, pale spaces that are revealed. When I approach him, he snaps at me or nods without listening. Whatever has eluded him about Bank of Tarabundo until now, Igor's appearance hasn't helped find. In the short time he's been here, he's aged visibly. It's not your fault, Ish says. It's the next morning. We're in the canteen with the door closed, eating cereal bars. It feels strange to be hiding from our own narrator. It's what Jürgen said, the artistic process. Writing a book's hard, that's all. Maybe a bank isn't the right setting for a novel. Well, he's got to make it the right setting, hasn't he, Ish says. That's his job, not yours. I keep thinking he should have written about Aoi, cocaine, hookers, multi-million dollar trades. <laughs> he didn't want that, Claude. He wanted an everyman. Could be he's not found the right one. You're crazy, Ish exclaims. You're a brilliant everyman. You think so? Definitely, she nods. I've been watching you, Claude, and you're doing a great job. She squeezes my hand in hers. Just be yourself, she says. Anyone would want to read a book about you. I'm touched by her words, but it's increasingly clear that my non-life in Dublin has defeated Paul's powers of representation, that there's simply not enough here for his art to gain a foothold. And when I emerge from the canteen, the final blow descends. Liam English, the head of the department, calls me over. Look at this, he says. On the other side of the room, Igor is holding the water cooler steady while Paul balances on top of it, unscrewing the vent over the air conditioning, apparently with the intention of inserting some kind of camera into the interior. I tried to make light of it, remarking on the incredible concentration that artists bring to bear on things that we take for granted, such as air vents. Wrap it up, Liam English says. I'll stop there. I'm going to sit for this part, I guess. Um, That was great. Thank you. Um, as, as, As... as Allison alluded to, I think at, at the beginning, um, uh, this is, uh, you know, on the one hand, I, I read this feeling that this is, um, uh, you know, maybe the, the best novel about kind of finance and, and that world that, that I have ever read, and there are actually quite a few of those, but, it, but it's also far and away the funniest, and of course, it's probably the only funny novel about um, banking <laughs> that I've ever read. And <clears throat> I'm sort of curious how you, um, you know, uh, uh, one of one of this book's kind of fantastic strengths, and, and, and I might add that that um, it, it really, uh, I'm not going to give anything away, but it, it really um, explodes that world. That that it's it's not exactly set exclusively in the world of banking. It it covers a lot of other ground, but you know, you you um, you you do manage to to bring a lot of information into it. Um, you know, and at the same time, I never feel like it's you know what's what Jonathan Latham refers to as the Wikipedia bits of a novel. You know, oftentimes you'll be reading a a book and you sort of go, oh well, this is the part where Jonathan Franzen tells us everything he knows about thus and such. And I, I not for a second in this book does the does the does the you know information uh, uh, intrude upon the the delight. <clears throat> and I'm I'm curious about um, first of all. Do, do you have any kind of background in in, in finance? <laughs> uh, no, quite the opposite. I have a background of being, you know, uh, having my loan applications rejected. I mean, so that's most writers' experience of, of, of banking uh, is being told, you know, you, you can't have a mortgage. Um, so uh, the first job I had out of college... Um, so Claude is French, and there's a certain amount of French philosophy in the book, or kind of, you know, French philosophy. Um, 
and that kind of goes back to the first job I had when I left college. Was um, it wasn't in a bank, but it was in the what's called the banking operations centre. This is in '97, so people still paid for things by check, and and um, basically every check that was spent in the country uh, was sent to this operations centre, this underground bunker, uh, and put in this enormous processing machine to be scanned and filmed and barcoded and so forth. Um, and my job was to put the checks into the machine, uh, and it was a very sensitive machine. So if the checks had like a corner or a staple or something, they, yeah. the machine would break. And um, so I had to stand there like literally for eight hours a day. I was making minimum wage, and you know there was millions of pounds going through my hands every day. Um, and it was qu- it was quite alienating and. Uh, the closer you got to Christmas, you start at 2 p.m. and the closer you got to Christmas, um, you know, the longer you'd have to stay because, you know, there's, you'd be there to 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. because people right. were spending so much money. So I really started to hate capitalism uh, yeah. at that time. Yeah. Um, and I sort of, I, 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 um, I was really sort of disappointed at how meaningless my college degree was because I studied in English, you know. Right. Uh, and I'd, you know, I'd sort of thought like there must be, you know, even though everyone had said, you know, don't do an English yeah. degree. <laughs> when I came out, I thought there must be some sort of uh, value to that, that I could, I could, I could, I could use my, you know, my reading of Paradise Lost in some regard. Um, and there wasn't, you know, it was, I was just standing at this thing day after day after day. Um, and, and just realizing that the, 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 the real world did not care about any of that stuff that I held to be so important was like uh, quite a, um, quite a uh, chastening lesson to learn. Um, and I got interested in, in French philosophy around that time because um, uh, I was living with my parents. My dad's an academic, and he had uh, this Roland Barthes reader at home, and I picked it up one day, and I read it, and I could understand about sort of 30% of it. And it seemed like, you know, like what's the one thing more more sort of arcane and and uh, irrelevant to kind of modern kind of capitalistic society than an English literature degree, French philosophy. So I started pursuing yeah. uh, French philosophy at that point. Um, so I start, so so that's kind of a rambling answer. Uh, I don't have a background in finance, um, but uh, but I, I lived through the. I lived through the... Ireland went through, like, uh, this incredible boom in the from about 97, just when I left college, till about 2007. Um, I went from being, like, a really kind of an agrarian sort of backwater uh-huh. that people just left, like, everybody just left. If you had any sort of chops or ambition, you'd go to the United States or, or the UK or Europe, whatever it might be. Um, and suddenly it changed very, very... Uh, um, suddenly and, and drastically into this... Uh, Global powerhouse. No one quite understood how that had happened, um, but suddenly there was there was there was money everywhere, um, and then just as suddenly in in 2008, uh, the crash came right. and all of that money disappeared. You know, um, so it was a really it was a really sort of frightening time because it seemed like uh, this new country that had. Uh, arisen from, I mean, the new country was very problematic, you know, there's a lot of problems that this, the new rich uh, money-oriented Ireland had. Um, but, you know, it had arisen from this, like, you know, the Irish history, if anyone's familiar with it, is just this, like, unrelenting, you know, lament of, like, misery and trauma. <laughs> so, like, it was, like, ten years of, of good times, and, like, well, people, people sort of, like, people right. genuinely did, like, you know, you, people just acted like dicks for ten years. It was, yeah. like, a, a ten-year bachelor party, yeah. and everyone was, like, driving SUVs and, like, wearing sunglasses, which you don't need to do in our <laughs> Don't need to do that, you know. But you sort of think, like, give them some leeway. It's been terrible for, like, whatever, 4,000 years. We'll have ten years of, of where we can sort of, you know, just, just be a bit of a tool, uh, and then it'll settle down. But it didn't settle down. It just, the, the bottom dropped out of, in this um, utterly, comprehensive, utterly comprehensive way, like that nobody had been expecting. Um, and I'd sort of, I'd been working on the previous book for, for about seven years, uh, Skippy Dies, and, you know, uh, I kind of emerged from my cave to find that like, the place was, had just like disintegrated. Like the, it was, you know, you'd walked in the streets and they were empty because like right. nobody was going to the, the shops and like everyone was waiting to, um, for the country to, 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 to basically foreclose, you know, to, or, to, right. or for the banks to foreclose on, on Ireland Inc. And, and for the place to, to go bust. Um, so um, I got interested in finance and all of this kind of, you know, jargon um, because it was at that period... Um, Inescapable, you know. It was like all anyone talked about. You know, every day you turn on the news, uh, and it'd be some like, like really arid uh, number. You yeah, know, like would yeah. be behind the news anchor, like 0.1 percent, and yeah. something terrible would happen yeah. to like, um, you know, bond yields or something like that. Yeah. And everyone would be going, "Oh, jeez." <laughs> um, so, so, um, so I. I uh, I, 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 like I was looking, for, I wanted to start a new book, right. and 
I, I didn't initially want to write a, a book about banking. You know, why would anyone want to write a book about, about <laughs> banking? Um, but at the same time, it felt like there was nothing else to, to write about. It felt like, right. you know, just, it was driving everything, every other story that, that you know, you, you were being told was kind of underwritten by this, by this enormous kind of black hole of debt that had been brought about by the, um, to the kind of greed and ineptitude um, of, of the country's uh, bankers and, and leaders. Um, so I started researching it, and uh, I spent a long time just reading books and it was uh, it was difficult in Tula. It was difficult to make the um, to understand what they were talking about, yeah. and it was difficult to make the stuff. Uh, like I did get really interested in this, but but you know if you, if I talked to my friends about you know credit default swaps, that right. immediately right. you know glaze over you know and, right. and or or pretend there was a fire right. in the whatever in the car. And, um, <laughs> so 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 that was hard. Like it was hard to kind of like try and find a way to make it credit default swaps funny. Yeah, you but know? you but it, you you did. I mean, that was sort of my my. Good kind of next question, I guess, was, and we started talking. We were talking about this a little bit before. You know, I, th- I feel like in the states, when, when, you know, if, if someone is going to write a book about banking, it usually is kind of in, it, it tends to be like, well, this is a serious novel. You know, unless it's like a, a satire. You know, like Tom Wolfe writing a satire, and this book is certainly not a satire. You know, um, but you know, the, the the sort of comic novel in the states is considered like it's it's um, it's a it, there's an odd. I don't know if it's a snobism about it, or maybe just people just don't know how to do it. Um, you know, and I was wondering, you know, like whether, you know, and then this book is so effortlessly funny. It's funny before it's before it's anything else in a way. And and you know, um, so it was a not easy, not exactly easy for you to just you didn't just sit down and start splitting your own sides with. Uh, uh, no, no, I had to. Um, like, I mean, I would I would naturally be drawn to writing right. humorous right. stuff and humorous yeah. dialogue. Um, and Dublin, I mean, Dublin, again, to, to advert to Ulysses, like Ulysses is a book about just two dudes walking around, <laughs> just running into people and talking. Like, it's a very kind of garrulous city. Right. Um, so I guess you develop, I mean, if you want to write about Dublin, like, my sense would be that you, you need to do it in, in dialogue to a certain right. degree. And people in Dublin, um, like, no one mm-hmm. says what they're thinking. Like, people talk in jokes. Like, people, like, Dublin's sort of a weird place in that, like, Ireland is kind of... Like my sense is that Ireland is kind of known for being for sort of like authenticity and sort of good, honest folk and so on, but in fact, um, Irish people are, um, are quite cloaked, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and are always finding ways to uh, to distract you from what they're actually sort of thinking. Right. Uh, and a lot of the time, that's that's done through through um, like either like just being drunk or else or else uh, right. jokes, you know, like people. Yeah, well, I think of Joyce as a comic novelist, you know, Flann O'Brien. I mean, the Irish, like, when I think of the Irish novel, I do tend to think of, you know, the comic, co- comedy as being kind of a main, yeah. you know, the main branch of it. Yeah, right? well, I mean, like, yeah. I mean, not, not to sort of uh, kind of start, start um, I don't know, waxing lofty, but, but um, like, Ireland's a, a post-colonial country, so Ireland, like, historically, Ireland's been independent since, like, 1920, mm-hmm. 1921, and before that, it was just run by this succession of empires, you know, as the British and, and you know, the Normans and the Vikings and the, the Church, whoever else, you know. Um, but we're, like, we're, we're it's, 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 uh, so the Irish, like, sort of, it's, it's not, that sort of mentality doesn't lend itself to taking yourself seriously. Like, if you've just been booted around for, like, sort of 2,000 years, right. you, it's, you don't really put on airs and graces. Like, your attitude to sort of, to, to power is kind of, um, it's kind of fairly ir- ironical, I suppose, sure. you know. Yeah. Um, and that lends itself to to making fun of things, you know, right. to making fun of the powerful, because, like, you know, he's, he's just locked you in the coal cellar, so you come out and you... you Right. Back <laughs> right. That, that's, so, that's sort of how Ireland sort of transacts itself. Um, and like, I think like the comedy. I mean, I think you're right. I think that that's, uh, the, the comic novel, uh, like it's the same on the other side of the Atlantic. The comic novel is sort of seen as a bit in for dig. I mean, uh, by the establishment, and I, I don't understand that. I think that um, Gary Steingart wrote a, a good essay recently right. about um, about Saul Bellow and Saul Bellow being this kind of con- consciously sort of highbrow writer, you know. Yeah. And, and but he's a comic writer. I mean, well, he's Bella, too, yeah, right? yeah, 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 very. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but yeah. but um, Steingart, Steingart, Gary Steingart was saying that, like, you know, in, in the modern world, cause there's so many, like, obviously, there's so many distractions, right. um, so many easier things people can do to write a book, that you know, writers have this sort of obligation to to to, to write sort of performatively, like right. write in some way that will engage you and bring you in. And um, I mean, if you're writing about something like finance, the financial crash. Right. 
Like I think that's even more, more necessary because it's it's such a turnoff for people. Even though like we're sort of we're still like in, admired in this stuff, and even though the problems haven't been addressed, addressed um, at the same time, like uh, certainly in, in Ireland, maybe it's a little bit different here. People just don't want to think about it. You know, they just right. want to think about it. So you have to find some kind of um, slant by which you can you can you can make whatever point you want to make right. um, without beating people over the the head with it. So like a really obvious way of doing that is to make the narrator the banker. So it, it right. stops me from just going on some sort of a you know tub thumping right you know right. Squeed. Well, that, that actually brings me to my next question, which is you know one of the other pleasant surprises of the one of the myriad surprises of the novel is you know at the beginning you you introduce us to the French banker, you bring in the novelist whose name is is Paul. And you know, of course, you know that when that happens, generally, often in American novels, I think, oh, you know, this is kind of an arch-like substitute for the author. And um, you know, Paul, Paul, the Paul in the novel uh, really turns out to be far more multifarious in his purposes and his personality than than I assume you are. Um, <laughs> I still have my wallet, so I'm going to say that that he is. <laughs> but I, you know, I wanted to ask. I guess that you know, I was curious about. Um, you know, I'm, I assume giving him your name was not an inadvertency that you were, you know, that you were inviting us to identify with him or to identify him with you even if that was a bit of a deke and I'm you know I'm curious what that yeah it's yeah. weird like I mean I don't I don't have a kind of like one straight answer to to to, to why I called him Paul like it mm-hmm. was um uh like we were talking about like Brad Snell earlier on yeah. and uh um, he was discussing Lunar Park recently, and yeah. obviously Brad Ellis is in Lunar Park. Yeah. And he said like that's the only way he could find his his way into the into the character, you know. And and by the same way, like I um I like initially I was going to call. So so I'll I'll give you very quickly the several reasons why yeah. why he's called Paul. Yeah. Um, like there's a long history, obviously, of of, of writers putting themselves in books. Like sure. Cervantes is in Don Quixote, and um, right up to David Wallace is in is in The Pale King, and um, and there's many many iterations, and to the point that it's 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 kind of a, a you, people could be forgiven for rolling their eyes at this stage. Yeah, for, for, right. uh, so I didn't want it just be some sort of arch kind of like metafiction thing, um, and uh, like so why did I call him Paul? Like so so, so initially like. Um, uh, he was going to be called Paul Murray because Roland Barthes is talking about Roland Barthes. Roland Barthes has written this book, wrote this autobiography called Roland Barthes by Roland Barthes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was going to, I was going to call the book Paul Murray by Paul Murray, but like, yeah, yeah, even yeah. my eyes were yeah. rolling to the back of my head. Um, <laughs> and I thought, uh, I thought that another, another reason for calling him Paul was that um, uh, Claude has this close French, and he's got this very. The reason, part of the reason he's French is that um, my sense, maybe wrong, I remember I'm romanticizing it, is that the French still have this very kind of reverential idea of what the artist is, you know, and they, in, in France, like an artist is still someone who's, uh, you know, who's, who's looked up to as kind of a seer and wears black polo necks and, yeah. and big glasses. And I always think of like of Paul Auster in that regard, yeah, you know, yeah. and, uh, and I always think, so Paul Auster is like sort of this capital W writer yeah. um, who sort of sometimes appears in his own books. And, right. And, uh, um, and my sense is that Paul Auster's account of being a writer was at variance with every other writer I know's experience yeah. of being yeah. a writer. Um, so that was another reason for calling him Paul. Um, but ultimately, it was like, like I tried changing his name. I was going to call him Randall Dunwoody for a while. Were <laughs> you? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it just felt like it just felt like. I mean, it started off as a gag. The whole book started off mm-hmm. like I started writing in 2002, um, before the crash, and I put it down. It was just going to be this sort of comic two-hander. Yeah. Um, and there wasn't enough there to kind of to kind of just give it traction. Um, and then when the crash happened, I kind of went back to it and like mm-hmm. saw the, that financial world in an entirely new light, like everybody else. Um, and equally, I realized that I didn't want the artist or the writer in the book just to be this kind of like he is this 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 kind of a deeply duplicitous man and he's a hack and he's on the skates. He's married to a lap dancer, you know, and he's 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 um, he's given up on art. Like he thinks art right. is, is obsolete. Art is finished in in the internet age. Um, but like he's it's not entirely a joke, you know. I think mm-hmm. I think that um, to a certain degree, uh, this writer kind of. Um, like everybody is kind of threatened by obsolescence in our right. modern world. Like we're right. all sort of like you know the, the obs- you know it's, it's it's kind of like the, the, it's constantly drawing in you know mm. more and more not just writers but like proper professions such as yes. you know are, are sort of like are, are in danger of being rendered obsolete by by um, by, by by technology. Equally, the writer um, 
there's a lot of stuff in the book about the gift economy, which is yeah. kind of t- uh, probably a bit too complicated. Is that a Lewis Hyde? Thing and yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Do you know that book? Yeah, yeah. I do. Yeah, um, that's an amazing book uh, about. So Lewis Hyde's. Um, I, I won't be able to give a proper account of it, but it's a. It's a book about how how can you be a writer in a, or an artist of any kind in a in a kind of yeah, mercantile. The, the, the book is called The Gift um, by Lewis Hyde. I, I, its full title for a long time was The Gift: Imagination and the Erotic Life of Property. But I think yeah, when I it was, that. I think because of when it was published in the in the UK, when Kennedy did it, Jamie Bing uh, chopped the. The, he was just like enough about that. That's too academic. We'll yeah. just call it the gift. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, and it is a it is a really wonderful um, book about about it's 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 you know it's I guess it's technically a kind of work of anthropology, but yeah. it's it's very conversational and anecdotal and and rangy and yeah. it's yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic, and like so, any any if you you are working as an artist uh, and you're feeling dispirited by modernity, I would refer you to the, the gift. Like it's a really very very powerful book. So he talks about the gift economy, which is something that like anthropologists discovered in old Pacific Islands. So instead of bartering, um, bartering is a, is a myth created by economists in in pre-market economies. People would give things, and the gifts that they would give would be passed along, you know, uh, from one person to another and from one island to another. And the story of the giver would go with the gift. Um, and the gift uh, would go around and around and around um, for generations. So, like, there's, this, like, there's a famous anecdote about an anthropologist who was in this, this one of these Pacific islands for, like, for 10 years. And then he le- as he left, he gave his guide a, um, a gold watch to say thank you. And he came back, you know, 15 or 20 years later, and he found that... Um, Everyone on the island was wearing a little piece of the gold watch, you know. Um, so it's like an entirely different concept of, of property. And the idea is basically that by giving, you're creating like a bond between people. And these, these gift circles, as they're called, are ways of, of binding people together. Um, so writers and artists um, and other people of, of that kind of stripe, um, they're kind of like a, that, that's a kind of a gift kind of right. that, that's working there. I mean, if you're working as an artist, like it's uh, you're not doing it for money, really. Like most artists aren't working for money, and what you're hoping will happen. There's sort of a presumption of it requires a certain amount of faith right. in people that like that that people will want what you're doing, and your hope is that it will help them in some way, and they will, you know, pay the gift forward, and that that artist is kind of like this binding this binding thing. Um, so I guess like Paul sort of represents uh, not just writing and art, but just the whole sense of like of togetherness, as Dublin is a place that um, where people have this kind of quite strong sense of community and and uh, and bonds, um, and that's sort of imperiled. That's being increasingly imperiled by this new Dublin that's represented by the Financial Services Centre, which is like you know, based on, like, technology and, and money and this kind of very ruthless and alienating individualism that, um, that kind of Claude exhibits and is making him very sad. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I'm curious, too, about um, the, the... You mentioned French philosophy, and, of course, the, the, book, the book's title, The Mark and the Void, um, is, we discover... I mean, it has many meanings and resonances th- throughout the book, but it's, it is within the book also the title of a work of philosophy by a French philosopher named Claude Texier um, who um, has retired or, or who historic, anecdotally had retired to start painting instead of doing philosophy. But, you know, I, I, I quite believed in the existence of this French philosopher while I was reading it. And then it took me a while to sort of be like, no, wait, you're, you're making this guy up. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm curious sort of where he, I mean, that obviously just, you drew him out of that 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 interest was there. Were you modeling him on any any particular? Uh, well, you know, okay, we're yeah. going down a dangerous path because I love all that stuff, but but yeah. people will be running for the yeah, doors. Okay, so, okay. Yeah. <laughs> we don't have to go too. Um, no, I, I, no, I love French philosophy. Like um, uh, like a lot of French philosophers, I find like impenetrable. Like Jack Derrida, I find right. I can't. Yeah, it's impossible. Yeah. yeah, there's a guy called um, Gilles Deleuze, who's yeah. a, who's a kind of a very very he's. He's very. He writes a lot about art and about writing, and um, uh, he's very into sort of creativity and affirmation. And he's very, very powerful. And I, I really loved him a lot. Um, and Barth, obviously, Barth is like a very sort of humane, uh, kind writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're all writing about this kind of this this uh, this this golden. They had this kind of golden generation in 1968. You know, um, when it seemed like sort of like art and philosophy, and also you know blue-collar workers and students and all of these different elements of society were going to come together and create something new. Um, and in, instead, they didn't, you know, and instead the world became, um, went the opposite direction and became much more kind of uh, hard on people and cruel in, in some ways. Um, 
I think that uh, one of the ways you could tell, you could have told that he's not a real philosopher is that it's you can you can read that bit and it makes yeah. a reasonable amount of sense. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was reading a bit about. Um, uh, I will stop talking about French philosophy, yeah. but my one anecdote is there's a philosopher called John Searle who's based in, in, in I think he might be based in California, I'm not sure, yeah. but he's great, very good friends with Michel Foucault, and uh, Foucault confessed to him that um, to be a successful writer in France, you would not be taken seriously unless there was uh, 10%, unless 10% of your of your writing was it made no sense. Would right. actually made right. no sense. Right. So Searle thought it was very interesting, and uh, he he met Pierre Bourdieu. Yeah, uh, and he said to Bourdieu, you know, Foucault says you have to write ten percent of stuff that actually doesn't make any sense. And Bourdieu looked at him, was silent for a long time, and said, "It's more like twenty percent." <laughs> <laughs> um, there's not very much, in fact, barely any actual French philosophy in this book. But there is a fair amount of uh, uh, kind of. Um, I, I feel sort of like publishing is sort of you know there's fine. Fi- I mean there are obviously other things, but but as you get deeper into the book, there's some sort of wonderful satire or or depiction, um, howlingly funny depiction of 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 um, publishing and and of uh, uh, particularly Paul. Paul in the book, his his dark horse is a very successful Indian novelist named Bimal Banerjee, whose first book came out at the same time and sort of swept off with all the accolades. And um, you know, the the book, I, I feel like you, one reads the book and comes away with a with a um, fairly, you know, the, the 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 depiction of the finance world. You know, you I, I, one gets the sense of of um, not not of not of a disproportionate judgment of the people within it, but, you know, the, the, the view of, of finance doesn't seem particularly... You seem like someone who hates capitalism, that's what I'm trying to say. Um, which, which, uh, which I do too, except my agent is here, so except, except when she practices it. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, you're, the, the, the publishing stuff, I, I, you know, you, you mentioned um, you know, Paul's sense of despair, and it made me think of, you know, one of the lines in the book that made me laugh out loud is that publishing a complaining that, that your novel is being ignored is like standing on a corner with your fly open complaining that no one has stopped to give you a blowjob. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, I, uh, <laughs> I just wondered if your, if your view of, of, of publishing is, is quite as um, steely as, you know, as your view of, of, uh, fi- of you know, f- finance. <laughs> Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't. Uh, firstly, I don't hate capitalism. I, I you know, I'm, I, 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 uh, I'm okay with capitalism. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I want to just to just sort of. Um, well, my standard thing that I would say when I'm talking about the book is this, there's this famous Oscar Wilde quote: "When bankers dine together, they talk about art, and when artists artists dine together, they talk about money." Um, <laughs> and each of the characters in the book, so Claude and Paul, are sort of opposite poles, or they seem like opposite poles. And each one each one wants what the other has. So the, the the banker looks at the artist and he sees this guy who lives in this kind of this state of grace, whereby like he doesn't have to think about you know um, the the tedious world of of you know paying your bills and the grubby minutiae things because he's he's elevated above that because he's He's so kind of immersed in his in his art, you know. And meanwhile, the the artist is looking at the banker and thinking, you know, he's thinking like, you know, I I I want that. I want what he has. I want the grubby. You know, I want to, you know, just 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 give me the money. You know, give me the flat screen TV and give me the, you know, the the SUV and give me the. I will take that. And I don't want the soul anymore. Yeah, yeah. And all that. Um, so each of them has sort of like quite a, quite a sort of a kind of a stereotypical view, I guess, of 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 what the other represents. And they discovered that, I mean, they're, the the journey, uh, right. if if you have to say that, is like that they they're kind of they're kind of alike. They're sort of two lost souls, right. um, uh, and they kind of have to help each other. So just sort of wake up and come out of their respective wells of loneliness and and try and be just a, a person in the world, you know. Yeah. Um, so uh, so um, where where was I going with that? Uh, can you remember? Uh, <laughs> I think I was just asking if your if your kind of v- view of of publishing, you know, that you, you that you you sort of that we were talking about yeah. fighting that feeling of you know obsolescence or you know yeah, Paul like, is fighting that. Well, feeling. Like it's hard. I mean, it's hard to um, like in in Dublin, like it's it's kind of the thing you can't complain about. Like it's an, it's a, if you can pay the rent working as a writer, then that's you're 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 blessed. You know, right. that's You're a fantastic dream. thing to yeah. to be able to do. So so I'm grateful for that. Um, the Celtic Tiger, this weird boom. In Ireland was uh, was um, was a strange time to be a writer because in Ireland, like uh, like literature 
is like the only thing that historically we've been any good at, like, you know, literally the only thing we've been good at. Um, so like for all of the many sort of centuries beforehand, um, it's the one thing that Irish people could sort of like look to to give themselves some consolation for, be, for being Irish, you know. Um, and when the boom came, this boom came in like 97, like the whole country sort of reoriented itself like 180 degrees in this really sort of overt kind of conspicuous literal way. Um, and one of the sort of the, 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 one of the consequences or manifestations of that was that writing became kind of um, like passe or anachronistic, you know. So like this was this is what we used today to do in the days of of you know misery and 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 you know and, and when it rained all the time and stuff. But now now people were just too busy having fun, you know, or right. going on shopping trips to New York or like buying properties in Armenia, whatever they're doing, you know. Um, so like so so they kind of they didn't really need that. So you felt like in a really strange way like that. I mean, it's a f- like every writer, I think, um, at the moment feels to a certain degree like imperiled by, like, like right. I say, like I mean, like other people, other walks of life too, feels imperiled by technology and how the world is changing so fast. And um, and I think this this economic boom gave people like a, a, a writers in Ireland like a very very sort of um, sharpened sense yeah. of that. Um, and I think that the kind of the dangers of that is that uh, the dangers of feeling kind of imperiled and straightened is that. Um, the danger that is that that you 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 kind of are tempted to make dark choices. You know, you're tempted yeah. to kind of uh, cater to the market or to uh, or, or to try and give people what what like you think that instead of writing the book that you want, um, which is what you know you're always told you should do. Right. Um, you feel like you should start writing. Um, you know, like a big, long historical novel about about right. whatever donkeys are, or, yeah. you know, like of which there are thousands in Ireland. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, so so there's so so in, in so in the book there's this there's this so Paul is like haunted by this um, very popular Indian novelist called Bimal Banerjee, who does mm-hmm. write these big books about um, you know genocide. You know, so mm-hmm. so like there's a certain yeah. strand of criticism in, in Ireland, whereby like you, you know comic books or books that are funny are sort of seen as being uh, somehow kind of vulgar or, or you know, um, trashy. Uh, and if you want to write a proper book, it's about, you know, genocide of one kind or another. So um, <laughs> so, so this guy, uh, Bimal Banerjee, has written um, a book called Ararat Rat Rap, yes. which is, um, it's about a singing rap, a singing rat who, who is, I can't remember what happens in it, but anyway. Yeah. There is a genocide in it. Somehow, yes. Who's written, who's written yeah. a, 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 a book about a hip-hop, a rat? A rat, R-A-T, yeah. who becomes a hip-hop star, right? Yeah. It, but it's, there is the, the, it does somehow tie to the Armenian genocide. Yeah, yeah. it's, like the, it's yeah. like the 2,000 years of, of, of genocide told through the perspective of a, of a rapping rat. And, <laughs> And and uh, he's so like this is this this yeah. is kind of so Paul goes to this dinner and um, and it's just one of these I'm yeah. sure you've been to yeah, a lot yes, of them, right? many of them these, these like yeah. hellacious dinners you know where where there's like just a really obvious hierarchy at the table like there's the there's the um, the guy who's throwing the dinner who's like the kind of respectable respectable kind of like Irish novelist whose books are like I think they're described in the book as being. Like taking a bath in Rohypnol, you know, sort of yeah, yeah. fall asleep after a couple of pages and wake up not remembering anything, but feeling kind of violated somehow. Um, but so he's there, and like he's he's kind of he's he's you know there's there's a certain amount of writers in, in Ireland like that who are just they're kind of like kind of holy cows, you know, yeah, and yeah. you sort of it's like like you were saying earlier, and like it's kind of like going to church and you sit down, and you dutifully read the book, and and um, so he's there, and then this like this this kind of um, this serious-minded Indian yeah. uh, novelist is there. Um, and then there's like Paul, who's who's just this, who's failed. Like you right. know, everyone knows Absolute that he's failed, failed yeah. and um, he's just trying to find ins to the conversation. And it's it's uh, it's abject, you know. It's so, an amazing so, scene. Though. Yeah. So I mean, that scene was like originally about sort of five times longer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which we should have like, remained. Don't, so don't don't put that in. Uh, yeah. Great. Um, I I think we should open up the floor here to see if any of these yeah. people. I just just wanted to add that when when artists get together i don't i don't think that they talk about money then nor do they talk about friends philosophy they talk about tv just like anybody else um yeah yeah uh, big time yeah um does everybody hear the question and yeah okay um 
So yeah, again, like not to hark on about the, this this kind of strange transition, but like it, it really was um, like this kind of through through the looking glass moment in 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 ninety seven ninety eight. Um, like when I was in school and in college, uh, like Ireland was I think the most um, mono monocultural country in the world apart from the Pitcairn Islands like it was like literally everybody was white like literally everybody was white there was like Phil Linus who played bass for Thin Lizzy and there was Paul, <laughs> Paul McGrath who's like a footballer and that was basically there were no other black people and it was like it was just you know and then very very quickly so when, when the money kind of came in which it did very swiftly um Suddenly, you had, you had sort of economic migrants coming in from, from like largely from Eastern Europe and from uh, from Nigeria, um, and then you had uh, people being brought over by these um, multinationals like Google and, and Facebook and so forth who were working there. So it suddenly became this. I mean, it would be like James Joyce would have had a uh, you know it was a, a, it would a field day because it, it became this kind of wonderful. Uh, polyglot city, you know. Um, suddenly, there was all these really good-looking women uh, walking around. You know, uh, it, it was um, it was really exciting and different, and um, but it was quite tiered as well in a strange way, you know. So, so you have the people working in the financial services centre, like Claude, for instance, um, and they're from. They tend to be from one part of the world, you know. They tend to be from Western Europe or from the United States, United Kingdom, and then the people who are you know, cleaning the place, or from Ukraine, or from Russia, or from, um, and that seemed to me to mirror, if I can wax, went yeah. grindos for a second, um, about capitalism. So, so you've got this, you've got these, this kind of these two mirror images in capitalism, whereby on the one hand you've got these, basically Dublin transformed itself into a into a tax haven. So, for instance, it has this really low rate of, of tax for corporations. Um, so, so. All of these companies come over to, to kind of avail of tax rate, and also more more pertinently to avail of the the lack of regulations. Um, but there's a big there's a big sort of uh, scandal at the moment because Apple, it turns out, uh, was paying this secret extra low uh, tax rate. They're paying two percent. Um, so they forewent. They didn't pay like 19 billion dollars in tax, and currently I think um, I think John McCain was 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 raising that. So Ireland is now sort of in the doghouse uh, in many ways, you know, yeah. for for being a kind of a rip off Republican. Um, so on the one hand, you've got this kind of tax haven, which like is, is basically available to very very uh, rich people, and then on the other hand, you've got these. Uh, Export processing zones, which is places in like you know Macau or or the Philippines or parts of China, whereby the government says like hands over the territory to, to these corporations and say and says like okay the tax laws don't don't apply here the labour laws don't apply here you can basically you can kind of do what you want. Um, so he's trying to slightly get us. Um, so Paul's married to um, Paul's married in the book um, is married to a, a, a woman from it's like a made up country called Ectovia, which is like near um, kind of Russia or Moldova. Um, and she's working as a as a stripper, um, but she's got a degree in in literature, you know. Um, and you meet people like that all the time. I mean, I'm sure it's the same here, you know. Um, but it was really interesting for me to be able to write about that because it's very very new, and it seemed to me that um, like this new Ireland that has appeared, like it's actually like a great way of of trying to write about the world beyond Ireland, you know. So so uh, so I enjoyed I enjoyed that. Yes, sir. Oh, could you, uh, just in a related way, could you maybe talk a little bit about the the sense from the novel that you get that um, the bankers and the powers of being were convinced that they would have no problem, uh, uh, you know, uh, putting in a policy of austerity with Irish people? Because you were talking earlier in the Q and A about uh, a history of anti-colonialism and yeah. uh, resistance, and also through humor and the, the on the cultural side of things. So why can you just say more about you know, how this seems so easily opposed by comparison to, say, Greece, where yeah. austerity was a big... Yeah, oh, that's a really good question. Um, uh, without wanting to get too political, um, Ireland is like, it's, po it's post-colonial, like, it's not anti-colonial. The thing about Ireland is that um, it kind of tended to, to, to... It's a tiny country, you know? And it didn't have the wherewithal to, to resist any of these mighty empires, you know? Um, so finally, like you know, Britain just pulled out because they were, it was expensive to run the place. It was tedious for them to deal with these things. Um, but by and large, like Ireland has a real problem with uh, with confronting power. Um, so 
So things tend to get not addressed in Ireland, like in a really, in a, and I try to get at that in the book a bit. Like Ireland's, Ireland has a long and very traumatic history, as, as, as I was saying, but uh, but it tends not to get addressed. Like it tends just to be swept under the carpet. So like in the first book, the, the previous book I wrote, there's a bit of stuff about the First World War. So all of these Irish soldiers, like 50, how many? 50,000 Irish soldiers died in the First World War. Um, but they like literally didn't appear in the history books because um, while they were at war, in while they were at the Somme, literally, um, Ireland had this uprising, the 1916 uprising. Um, so so they came back and and they were suddenly they were they were traitors, you know. So they were rubbed out of the history books. Like the Civil War, by the same token, was just not in the history books. Um, what happened? All these terrible church scandals um, were like not confronted for decades and decades and decades. Um, and now. The banking thing is, uh, like, people are very angry about it, um, but nothing's actually happening. You know, no one's been sent to prison. Uh, currently, there's, uh, there's a guy called, um, like, the worst, the worst, uh, the, the, probably the kind of the, the worst offenders of, of the banking crash were with this, was a bank called Anglo-Irish Bank, um, and they achieved notoriety. Like the, I don't know, there's, there's, the crash sort of operated slightly different in Ireland to, than it did in in the United States. So in the United States, you had like some subprime mortgage crash. You had all these, you had these uh, analysts, rocket scientist type analysts, who were creating these incredibly complex like algorithms um, by which they thought they could sort of you know. Um, they could sort of evade any kind of like problem. They could evade. Uh, they could make it sort of risk-free to to take on all of these uh, incredibly um, these huge sort of subprime mortgage loans, and they were wrong, you know. Uh, so I call it the kind of I call it the kind of the clever, stupid crash. And in Ireland, you had this stupid, stupid crash, <laughs> whereby like what you had was like banks. It was like this huge property bubble. So you had, all, you had these banks which were just throwing just huge amounts of money at developers, you know? So you'd be like a developer and you'd, you'd, uh, you'd meet your banker on the golf course or in the pub and you'd say, like, I need 5 billion uh, euros. And the banker would go, like, okay. Because the thinking was in Ireland that, that it was this, like, we were living in this economic singularity whereby, like, the, the boom, this property boom would, like, never, would never end, you know? Uh, and if you read, like, uh, any history book at all or, or had just been alive during <laughs> any part of the 20th century, you'd know that that's, that's just not the case. But they kept doing it and doing it and doing it. And, um, like, The Economist magazine, this very influential magazine in London, like, in 2003, was issuing these warnings saying, you know, you'd be on the front cover saying, like, Ireland, Jesus Christ, you know, or something like that. Like, Ireland, WTF. Um, but in Ireland, you know, the bankers and the economists just go, like, you know, no, like, don't, just, don't, like, leave us alone. The bankers had, like, again, like, this, in, this, this transition had occurred and the old way of doing things, the church, which had its own problems, obviously, which had used to be sort of like, you know, issuing, told people how to live, um, had sort of been replaced by the bankers and the wealth creators. And they were regarded now by people as being the ones with the special knowledge. And they brought us this new era of like SUVs and, and you know, lattes and sunglasses and so forth. So we didn't want to, nobody wanted to rock the boat. Just let them do it. It's like, don't, 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 don't rock, you know, don't, don't damage it and famously the, the Taoiseach Bertie O'Hearn the, the, the Prime Minister said um, like anyone people who sit around cribbing and moaning uh, about you know you know the possibility of economic default he said I don't know why they don't go off and commit suicide you know um, so it's just like shut up shut up and let them do what they want uh, and they did and the, the, the banks tanked um, and this bank Anglo-Irish um, was the worst and lost the most money and uh there's a guy who's, who's currently, um, he, he fled to Boston. His name is David Drum, and he's currently incarcerated because they're trying to extradite him to, to Ireland um, to try him to face the music, you know. Uh, and he was like the biggest villain because this, this, uh, the bank was given like 7 billion euros by the government to try and tide it over, which wasn't enough. But this tape came out subsequently uh, whereby, wherein Drum and these other bankers are talking about the 7 billion loan. And 7 billion in Ireland, because it's such a tiny country, that's a lot, it's a lot of money, you know. Um, and they're laughing and going like, fuck, why do we even get 7 billion? And, and Drum goes, I pulled it out of my hole. Ah! Um, so just like this, the, the, the darkness, you know, just the terrible darkness. Um, but, but, like, but, but there's this culture of like impunity. It basically, it doesn't matter if you're rich and you're powerful. Then like, it doesn't really matter what, what you do. Like, no one is ever going to, no one is going to be put in prison. But I don't know. Maybe it's the same here. Like I was, I was, um, I was talking to this. Same. Uh, is it yeah. same here? Oh yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> so I was talking to this financial journalist a couple of days ago about um, this guy, um, uh, Dick Fold. Do you know Dick Fold? 
Uh, Dick Fold was the head of Lehman Brothers. And it was really interesting to me um, just how, uh, how um, like for all of the, for all of the sort of the, you know, the abstraction and the, the sort of the quanti- quant- quant- quantitative nature of banking, like it fundamentally comes down to, uh, it comes down to interpersonal relationships, you know, it's like anything else. Um, so we're talking like about how Bear Stearns had gone down in, in March of 2008, subprime mortgage, you know, had clobbered Bear Stearns, and the bankers sort of came together and pulled Bear Stearns out of the water, you know. And Bear Stearns is a bank that I'd researched, and it was run by these two horrible people called um, Ace Greenberg, who was 90, and Jimmy Kane, who was 68. And their, Ace Greenberg was was only staying in power because he hated Jimmy Kane, and he wanted <laughs> Jimmy Kane not to be boss of the company. Uh, and Jimmy Kane, they're both worth you know billions and billions of billions. But they both stayed. They were both there just because they hated each other. Um, but the bankers, anyway, the bankers bailed out Jimmy Kane and Ace Greenberg and Bernstein. But Dick Fold was known as the gorilla of Wall Street and um, was known as, in an industry that rewards sociopathy, was known as like the, just the biggest asshole on Wall Street, the most horrible, like you know, depraved, uh, awful person on Wall Street. And when, and that's why. Uh, Lehman crashed because, like, when Lehman went down, uh, they went to the Fed and said, "Like, we need to get, you know, we need to get, we need to rescue uh, Lehman Brothers." And uh, the bankers all went like, "Well, well, well, Fold is in trouble." Um, and they said, "You know, we're not going to do it because we, we hate we hate Dick Fold." So this huge crash, um, this huge crash occurred basically because of Dick Fold and everyone hating Dick Fold. If we'd be nicer at like the golf tournaments, the pro, you know, like maybe the crash wouldn't have happened, you know? So it's really strange. And she was saying this, this, um, can I get the, can I, make, can I just try and find the, the stat here? If I can? Yeah. Um, this, this, so I was complaining about, I was complaining about, um, about like Ireland, like never sort of addressing its problems. And she was saying, yeah, it's, it's actually America is not doing that either. So, so Dick Fold's, and Lehman Brothers are responsible for a financial collapse which in the US alone has cost more than the New Deal, the Marshall Plan, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the 1980s savings and loan crisis, the invasion of Iraq, and the total cost of NASA, including the moon landings, all added together and adjusted for inflation. And Dick Fold is now offering his services as a financial consultant. Uh, so if, you, if you'd like to... Uh, I guess you could hire him and then do the opposite of what he says. Like maybe, maybe you get rich. But she also said... Um, uh, she also, this financial journalist said that, um, like nobody ever learns. Like history teaches us that history teaches us nothing. And Ireland, I think, like is a particularly bad instance of that. But I guess it's it's sort of prevalent everywhere. But the, the hedge funds are already ready for the next crash. Like the next crash right. is is they're expecting it'll be college loans. There's 1.5 trillion dollars of, of of college loans out there. The default rate is 20 percent. When his 25 percent, then. That's that's the crash. That's the next crash. So they're already shorting things like uh, textbook publishers, uh, construction companies that build college dorms, that kind of thing. So, um, I mean, don't take financial advice from a from a writer, but uh, <laughs> but, but but I mean, that is to say, like, I mean, I, I guess. You know, it just seems to keep rolling. The whole thing seems to keep rolling over and over and over again and it's getting worse and worse each time. I feel like you've just given me ideas for, you know, how scary Halloween costumes. You know, Ace, Ace Greenberg. That's a, yeah, that's yeah. a trustworthy sounding fellow. Yeah. Um, do we have any other questions? Yeah, one more and we'll, then we'll... Then we'll uh, yeah. To go back to your first book. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I fell in love with Gene Tierney. And I was going to read that book. Oh, right, great. Yeah. How did you... Was that something that you already knew about before you began to write that book through the character, or did it just happen? Oh yeah, that's that's a, that's a great question. Um, so the f- the first book I wrote was um, it's called An Evening of Long Goodbyes, and it's about um, this kind of sort of twenty five year old layabout who lives in um, this very beautiful posh part of of. of Dublin called Killiney, which is near where I lived. I lived in sort of the, the crappy suburban part. But in Killiney, that's where Bono lives and so on. Um, and uh, he, it's about the boom and this, bo- this boom that's, a, that's, that's just about starting at that point. Um, and he's, this guy is sort of like a wannabe, wannabe aristocrat. Uh, and he's disgusted by all this like vulgarity and stuff. And he just wants to, he just wants to sit around his, his beautiful house and watch movies and black and white movies. And at that point in my life, that's really all I wanted to do. I didn't want to. I just out of college, and I didn't want to get a job, and I didn't want to. The real world frightened me, and all of this change frightened me. And um, and those film noirs are really they're kind of they're kind of about that kind of anxiety, I guess, right? They're about they're about um, if you're familiar with these film noirs, I think they made them all in um, 
they're all made by these uh, by these these German expressionist uh, directors who'd fled. They'd fl- like a lot of them were Jewish, so they'd, they'd fled Germany and they'd come here. And all these like really gifted like directors called Fritz Lang, and they're making these B movies for no money, and they're all just about like. Um, being trapped in a machine, like they're all trapped in this, this plot machine, and there's always this, this weird sort of fear of women in them, um, because I think women were women were in the workforce at, for the first time because of the Second World War, like because all so many men were away, uh, the women working in the factories, and this obviously this is like terrifying to everybody. Um, but Jean Tierney was uh, when I was a kid, um, I used to come down when I was I couldn't sleep, I'd come down. And, and watch TV with my parents and uh, I remember that film like I remember Laura I remember uh, and like Jean Tierney is is uh, it's just this like luminous you know this hypnotic figure and um, I, I, I was working in a bookshop I didn't know anything about her but I was working in a bookshop um, in 99 I guess and I was starting to write that, that book uh, and I was working in the cinema section on the top floor and no one ever came up there so I used to just spend all my time reading these um the internet didn't really exist, so I'd read these cinema encyclopedias and just find out about her. She had this terrible, this terrible sad life. I don't know if is it, are you guys familiar with Jean Tierney or yeah. Um, so she had this. She was very, she was very vulnerable and very fragile, and and she was, but she was very beautiful. And because she was beautiful, she's kind of fed into this, you know, the sausage factory that is like the Hollywood star system. Um, and she has this succession of 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 you know just the wrong husband several times, and um, she started to go crazy, you know. And uh, it was very very sad. I can't remember the details. Um, I remember like the, I think the last movie she made, she was starting to crack up. She was making it with Humphrey Bogart, I think. Uh, was it the was it the African Queen maybe, and she was just hallucinating like crazy, and like Bogart was very kind to her and he was very protective of her, and but then eventually she just she just couldn't she couldn't do it she couldn't survive and um, and she left Hollywood and she went to uh, she ended up marrying a millionaire and um, recently uh, there was this street photographer on O'Connell Street and uh, he just took pictures of of you know you pay him like a shilling or whatever and you take pic- and he was there for like sixty years O'Connell Street sorry is the main thoroughfare in in Dublin. Uh, and his archive has just come to light. It's just been digitized. And who's there except Jean Tierney? Uh, and her, maybe she's like 60, and she's wearing a fur coat, and she's there with her millionaire husband, and she looks she looks great, you know? So that was, really, that was a really nice way to end that story. Um, uh, yeah, that's... that's uh, I, I really... I, I guess in the book, he sort of... The character, Charles, is very worried about his sister because she's fragile, and that's how she... He sort of maps his anxieties onto, um, onto Jean Tierney and... Uh, yeah, she's she's. Um, I watched a lot of her movies as research for the book, and like she made a lot of really terrible, <laughs> really terrible films. Yeah, Laura's like an amazing yeah. masterpiece. Yeah. Um, is are there anything? Is there anything else? Or do you want to do you wrap up? Or yeah, let's let's do the let's let's that's it, right? Okay. Time yeah, to yeah, time yeah, time yeah, yeah. time for you guys to yeah, get some books signed. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.